Happy Independence. Um, we just celebrated last week, right? Uh, and the week before, the United States, they celebrated their own independence, right? Which they declared from Britain, those vile oppressors, in 1776, right? But did you know that New Providence played a role in the United States uh, Revolutionary War that they fought against Britain in 1776, right? In fact, the U.S. Marines' very first amphibious assault was held right on Montague Beach. Mm -hmm. uh, the rebel U.S. colonies, they, they started to run out of ammunition and supplies. And so they heard that Virginia had sent all their uh, supplies to New Providence. And they decided they were going to capture those supplies. And so under the command of Samuel Nichols, he led an assault by the U.S. Marines. They captured Fort Montague on the first day. But they made a mistake. They didn't carry that momentum into the rest of the island and overtake the rest of the people. And what that did was that gave the British governor at that time, his name was Montfort Brown, that gave him enough time that night to hold a council and load up all their supplies that they did have, load up those supplies onto a boat that set sail for Florida at 2 a.m. So the next morning, the U.S. Marines would take the rest of the island with no resistance. Uh, the governor actually sent a delegation of people with the keys to the city and handed it over with no fight. And in spite of his peaceful surrender, Montfort Brown, he would complain how the rebels would drink all his liquor and tie him up uh, like a criminal. Well, maybe that's what happens to cowards. I don't know. Uh, the Marines would stay for a fortnight. And so that means that we were actually a U.S.-occupied territory for two weeks. They loaded up all the supplies that they could find, uh, and as quickly as they came, they left. Now, maybe they didn't want to deal with pirates. Maybe they didn't want to deal with a retaliation by the British. Um, maybe we just weren't a part of their overall strategy to capture their own independence. But the fact remains, just like the British governor, they gave us up without a fight, and they gave us up for nothing. They did not see the value in what they could have possessed in this island. There is also a temptation to forget the value of the spiritual blessings that we have received. Whether it's through busyness or boredom, we can neglect the value and life and blessings God gives us and make a devastating exchange and lose that which is most valuable. So this morning, I want us to understand the answer to the question, how do I know when I'm in danger of exchanging the blessing of God for something that is essentially worthless by comparison? And how can I avoid doing that? All right, so to get our answer, we're going to look this morning in Genesis 25, verses 27 through 34. Last Sunday evening, we saw uh, how Jacob and Esau were born but this week, we're going to see them as they've grown up and the kind of men that they have become and the decisions they make based on that, particularly in regards to Esau this morning. Okay, So to give you an idea of where we're going, 
uh, I want us to see from God's word, first of all, that our lifestyle influences how we view the blessing. And then we're going to see that acting impulsively can cause us to abandon the blessing. And finally, we're going to see how we can be confident that we are actually valuing the blessing that God has put into our lives. Uh, so before, but before we start this morning, I want to define some terms, okay? I'm talking about blessing. I'm talking about giving up the blessing and losing blessing and stuff like that. Just want to make sure that we understand this morning. If you are a Christian, I'm not saying you lose your salvation. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the Christian is secure in Christ, and God does not lose any that have been given to him. All right? So we're not talking about losing salvation. We're talking about the daily blessings, the daily benefits that could be ours if we would value the blessing of God. If you are not a Christian, if you do not believe, then I am talking about salvation. I am talking about eternal blessing that you will forfeit if you are valuing this life above the spiritual life. So Genesis 25, verse 27 through 24. I'm going to read the whole passage. It says, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man, living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for gain. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please, let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. All right. So the first point we see in this text this morning is that your lifestyle is going to influence how you view the blessing. Your lifestyle influences how you view the blessing. The first two verses of this passage catch us up on what has become of Jacob and Esau since their birth. And we see that their personalities and natures are very different, different dispositions. Esau is described as a skillful hunter in the English versions. But more literally in the Hebrew, it says a man knowing game. He knows how to catch. He knows how to hunt. Now, let me warn you today. Today, I am going to be talking about Hebrew words in this text. Uh, it's not to show off. It's not to confuse anybody. All right. But it's important because these words are key to understanding what Moses is doing with this text. Okay. So he's, he's letting us know certain qualities about Esau that have a direct influence on how he views the blessing. Esau is someone who loves the outdoors. All right. He is a man of the field. Now, there's nothing wrong with being uh, a hunter or someone who likes the outdoors. Uh, some of the godliest men you'll meet are the most resourceful and rugged men you would want to have out in the wild with you. 
Uh, my dad is a fisherman, right? And if it were up to him, he would be out in the boat fishing every day. He wears the classic T-shirt, born to fish, forced to work, right? Um, we, had, we had four men on stage for our Father's Day service who could easily be classified as men of the field or, more appropriately, men of the sea, right? And these guys are cunning fish hunters who, who have survival skills. Uh, and I guess you learn something, Brother Clifton, right? When you've been on fire and had to swim for four hours. I, I still don't think that was a true story. Uh, <laughs> we have guys on TV. Anybody ever watch the show Duck Dynasty? Okay, those guys are Christians. And they love being outdoors. So the point is not that because Esau liked to be outdoors, he was a bad man. That's not the point. The problem with Esau's lifestyle shows up when the author contrasts Jacob with him. All right? Uh, now, depending on your English version, it may say that Jacob was a peaceful man, or he was a quiet man, or a mild man, or an even-tempered man. Translators and commentators, they wrestle with this word in the Hebrew that's describing Jacob. It's the word tom. And uh, it, in most cases, it's used to describe something that is perfect or without sin. But we need to get it out of the way right now that Jacob is not a perfect man. Okay? Uh, we see in this story, especially, he's greedy and he's manipulative. And as we see his story throughout the book of Genesis... Uh, it takes him a while to learn how to be a godly man. All right, so we're not going to say Jacob is perfect, but he's different than Esau. And so we're going to say that Jacob is calm. He's civilized. He's under control. He lives in tents. He stays at home like a normal person. Okay? The author is being deliberate. He's saying Jacob's Temperament was desirable, but Esau's was not. So this tells us what Esau's problem is. Esau is a wild man and a man who lives free and reckless. He's aggressive, he's boisterous, he's rough, he doesn't have to answer to anybody. He does what he wants when he wants. And he's probably fun to be around and a little exciting, right? The most uninhibited people, they tend to have fun for a while. There's always a cost of freedom. There's always a cost of freedom. Whether you use your freedom for good or for bad could determine the type of consequences you feel. So do we have people like Esau in Nassau? Okay, thank you. I, they're all over the place, right? I think one of the most obnoxious people I've ever seen was when I just came back home for the summer and I was in a cell phone store and there was this guy in there and he was loud and obnoxious and rude and he thought he was hilarious, right? These are the kind of people who yell at you and make fun of you and... And then when you get offended, uh, they don't understand because 
they blame you for not being able to take a joke, right? I don't know if this is some kind of perpetual big brother syndrome where they feel like they need to pick on everybody. Maybe it's a defense mechanism to keep people at a distance. Maybe it's just how they were raised. Maybe the uh, parental influence has something to do with it. And even in this text, we do see that, that parenting has something to do with it because each child is favored by the opposite parent. We see Isaac, how he encourages this lifestyle because he, he enables Esau. He rewards him by, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. Esau is able to satisfy Isaac's appetites. And here we actually get our first hint at the favoritism in this family that is going to put the final nail in the coffin for these relationships. But we'll soon learn that just like Isaac has his appetites, Esau has his appetites as well. All right. But, but here, in regards to Isaac's love for Esau, the verb form here, it doesn't really tell us anything about the quality of this love that Isaac has. It just says, Isaac loved him because game was in his mouth, is the literal reading. Um, now, we could take that to mean that whenever Esau brought him game, that's when Isaac loved him. So, meanwhile, Rebecca's love for Jacob takes on a participle form. Okay, And what that means is, we could translate it as, Rebecca was loving Jacob. And there's no reason given for her love for him. Rebecca's love is a more enduring kind of love. Jacob doesn't have to work to earn his mother's love. That might have something to do with his more stable disposition, right? So the most natural takeaway from this, I think, for us is that no one should make their children feel like they have to perform in order to earn their parents' love. Performance should not reinforce feelings of acceptance. See, when we do that, we reinforce negative behaviors and we teach our kids to, uh, they, they develop a life of instability because they're always wondering if, if someone's going to stop loving them if they stop performing. And, and, they're, and they're always reaching out, grasping for the next thing that feels like acceptance and feels like it's going to satisfy them. And as a consequence, they, they don't believe that God loves them unconditionally. They feel like they have to work to please God. And they're not going to value God if they feel like they have to work for him to love them. So let's, let's be like Rebecca. Let's love them with endurance that they don't have to doubt. That will produce a stability in their life that can value the things of God. All right, so the writer has helped us understand the differences between these two men so far, and we see how that plays out in this event of selling the birthright. We reach the main event of this passage, all right, and how Jacob acquires it. And, and we're going to learn that a lifestyle of self-fulfillment easily abandons the blessing. A lifestyle of self-fulfillment 
easily abandons the blessing. See, we're told that Jacob stewed a stew. He cooked something, and Esau comes in from the field completely starving because he hadn't caught anything. Now, at, at first glance, this might look like just a cute coincidence. Oh, Jacob cooked something, Esau came in. Oh, and how fortunate for Jacob, he can pounce on this. Uh, but a closer look shows us, that, shows us what's really going on. Uh, the verb here for cook doesn't only mean cook. It means there's, there was something intentional going on uh, in Jacob's mind. There's intentionality in this act. Jacob was cooking this meal for a purpose. He had a plan. And this is confirmed by a, a play on words that the author uses here. All right, So we, we learned earlier, Esau was a man knowing game. Okay, and that word game in the Hebrew is Said. Said. And we're told that Jacob was cooking some stew. In Hebrew, that word is Nazid. Said and Nazid. Now, the rhyming quality of these words in the Hebrew ear would trigger them to say, oh, Esau knows how to catch game, but Jacob's stew is going to be bait. The hunter has become the hunted. It's brilliant writing. So in verse 30, Esau comes in demanding to be fed. And what we get here is a picture of a man who is desperate and grasping. He's asking to gobble down some food down his throat. He says, says, let me gobble down the red, this this red. It's like he's so... uh, Unable, he can't even pronounce the words. He just wants food in his mouth. This is where we learn the Edomites get their name from, okay? Uh, Edom means red. The author is saying that the Edomites, who would come after Esau, they're impulsive because of their descended from Esau. And it's also explaining why Edomites don't participate in the blessing uh, because. Jacob actually acquired this blessing from Esau. And so we, sing, we see Jacob spring his trap. All right? He says, sell me the blessing. I gotcha. See, it was all part of his plan. Now, what is the birthright? The birthright is the inheritance that was supposed to belong to the firstborn son. It's a double portion. And in this context, it's also the heritage of the spiritual promises that were supposed to be passed down through Abraham's family. Esau's response, this is characteristic of a person who lives by his appetites and doesn't understand the value of what he has. Now, at first, we may think this is a reasonable, reasonable response. He's like, I'm going to be dead. I'm not going to be able to use this blessing anyway. So, all right, I'll, I'll give it up. Um, but when we take a closer look, the problem is we see later he was nowhere near the point of death. He had exaggerated everything. Verse 34 shows us how exaggerated Esau's predicament was. It says, what does it say? He ate and drank and rose and went on his way like nothing happened, like he had given up nothing. See, the quick succession of these verbs just shows that Esau still has quite a bit of life in him, right? There's a deliberateness to what he's doing. 
Um, there's no discussion afterward with Jacob about saying, hey, man, you're not, you're not really going to take my birthright from me, right? I mean, I was dying. I mean, I still want it. You know, it's pretty important. No, nope, there's no conversation like that. Uh, there's no recovery time. What did he say? He said he was at the point of death. Uh, have you ever been so exhausted to the point where you thought you were going to die? Like literally going to die? I have. I've, I, I was out in the boat with my uh, dad and brother Charlie, and they know this story. Um, and I had been vomiting from seasickness. Uh, not quite a man of the sea, right? Um, and so dad dropped me off on the beach by myself and I just went and I collapsed. I put a towel over me so I didn't get sunburned and I made my peace with God because I was sure I was going to die. <laughs> it was not even a joke. I was sure I was going to die and I was ready to go. And, and, it was, and I just collapsed and I passed out and I fell asleep. And I, maybe an hour, I don't know how long it was until they came back, at least an hour. But there was no way that I was just going to eat and uh, drink and get up and, and walk away as though nothing had happened. There's no way. I needed time to recover. But with Esau, we see none of that. See, Esau, he saw the birthright as collateral. He saw it as, oh, I'll put this up now and I'll get it back later. And Jacob, he's no dummy, right? He understands Esau's tendency to be impulsive. So he makes him swear to sell this birthright. And because maybe as impulsively as he sold it, he would turn around and say, oh, you know what? Uh, no, deal off. Uh, he's, he's making sure Esau won't be able to take it back when he feels better. And make no mistake, this was not simply a moment of weakness in Esau's life. This was an attitude of patterns that he had developed throughout his whole life, and Jacob knew how to capitalize on those tendencies. This whole story is a warning to us. It's a warning for us not to be like Esau and give away our blessings for nothing. It's a warning against living for our own appetites and fulfillment. It's a warning we need to take seriously because if we're not careful, we will let this society convince us that everything else is more important than spiritual blessing. So how do we know if we are showing contempt for the blessing like Esau? Here's some things. We are in danger of abandoning things of lasting spiritual value when we satisfy our desires for earthly success. When we satisfy our desires for earthly success. We, we convince ourselves that life is too busy to focus on spiritual things. I got so much going on. I can't do that anymore. In other words, everything else becomes more important than being a faithful disciple. And this manifests itself in inconspicuous ways. And in may, many times we don't even recognize it. We don't detect what's going on in our heart, how we are slowly losing value for the blessing of God. It almost seems like no big deal. Man, that extra 15 minutes of sleep in the morning, that becomes more important than fellowship, fellowshipping with God in his word that morning. And I'm guilty of that. Man, I know that. Um, the sports league your child plays in, they play games on Sunday. So you know what? They got to do that. 
that is more important. We will sacrifice church so that my child can play sports. Um, my child must get good grades. So they can't go to youth group anymore. Oh, they got to drop out of the choir. This is something that we've noticed in youth ministry is that church is the first thing to get cut when, you know, when outside things uh, come up that also require commitment. Um, and I, I can't save money for a missions trip. I got to go on vacation. You know, I got to spend some money in Florida. I, man, I can't go to camp. I'm saving up money to buy a new phone. All right? <clears throat> Parents, let me say this. If you want your child to value the blessing of God after you don't have control over them anymore, show them how valuable and joyful it is to you now. This is a, actually a problem in the U.S., where parents are going to their pastor and saying, why is my child leaving the church? And all the pastor can tell them is, you communicated through their whole life that church was merely an option. When sports came up, sports was more important. Entertainment was more important. School was more important. And they caught that and they learned that. And this is what happens when you consistently choose the natural over the spiritual. We show contempt for God. And that's something I want to warn us against this morning. When we satisfy our appetites and urges like Esau, each of us has different appetites and urges. Um, maybe it's for a relationship. Uh, girls, the boy tells you you're pretty. Okay. Uh, he's cute. Uh, okay. Um, it won't be cute when you've exchanged your dignity and maybe your future for something that was temporary. And perhaps the most undetectable way that we undervalue the blessing of God is when we satisfy ourselves with predictability and routine when church is just a part of our routine, Christianity becomes our hobby. Man, what a tedious hobby that would be if that's all it is. We go to church because it's our duty. We pray at our meals, well, because my parents did that, and so I'm doing that. These are good things, yeah. But if that's all it is, if we just do things because it's a, it's a duty, because it's what we were told we have to do, then it's all law and it's not grace. See, it's not just about doing more spiritual things and being committed to them even though they make us miserable. See, there has to be relevance. There has to be understanding as to why we do what we do Otherwise, they won't understand why it's important, why it means something to you. The routine will just become a ritual, and then it'll become a burden and boring, right? And then it just becomes something that, you know, it's just another tradition that 
has no real foundation in life, and so we can discard it or we can exchange it for something else. See, there's, there's a whole lot more options today than there was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, you know, we got internet and sports and movies and work and vacation and all these different things that, that can be a more fulfilling option. And so valuing our faith gets swept under the rug for the sake of self-fulfillment and self-improvement and self-gratification. And we need to be careful. What are we actually communicating by our actions and not just our words? But you know, perhaps the, the struggle isn't just with valuing God's blessing. Perhaps we struggle simply with believing. Hebrews 12, 17 is comparing Esau with, with those people in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, right? And in Hebrews 12, 17, it says Esau was godless. See, the, re- the reason Esau didn't value the blessing was because he didn't believe. He didn't believe the blessing was from God. He didn't believe God. Do we struggle with this? Do we struggle to actually believe that this is from God, that God has blessed us with this? Or do we think that we did that? Do we think that it's just a natural consequence of what would have happened anyway? See, that's the danger with routine. It becomes so mundane and we become so numb that God isn't even involved in it anymore. This is, this is what we call functional atheism. We say we believe, but we don't live like it. We have to be more than functional atheists who say we believe. We have to actually live like spiritual things have lasting value. All right, so we've seen from Esau that our lifestyle influences how we view spiritual things. And we've seen that acting impulsively can cause us to abandon the blessing. So if we want to heed these warnings, what's something tangible that we can do to make sure we are holding on to spiritual things? And I, I want to sum up this point of application with three words. Review, refresh, revive. Review, refresh, revive. First of all, you need to review your routine. Review your routine. Uh, Look at every aspect of your spiritual routine, your quiet time, your church attendance, your ministry involvement, everything, and and assess whether you have any greater reason for doing them other than duty and pressure and routine. See if you have any joy in your life. You know, it would probably be a a healthy discussion to sit down with your kids and explain to them why you do what you do. Let them ask, why do we go to this church? It would help them understand reasons why it would give them a firm foundation for why you value the blessing. Explain to them why you're even a Christian. 
then they can learn to value what you value. All right. Uh, so after you review, if you find that there are areas that feel stagnant and numb, refresh them. Shake things up, okay? Do something a little different with your quiet time. If you always do it in the morning, try it in the evening. See what happens. Maybe take a class at Telios to get more background on why we believe what we believe. Maybe instead of spending all day playing video games and watching sports, maybe download a sermon, right? Something different that, uh, you know, it can refresh your mind and help you understand again why the things that we do spiritually are so important. And finally, allow your spirit to be revived. Allow it to be revived and fully enjoy the reality of eternal value of the spiritual life that God has blessed you with. Be intentional about enjoying the blessings and then we can truly value the God who gave them to us. Now, before I close, uh, I want to say that I know that there are people in this congregation who know that they have already made choices that have caused them to abandon some blessing. Uh, and I just want to tell you, God has not abandoned you. God knows uh, that there are consequences that you have experienced, but there is always, there is always grace that God has for his people. And he will accept you, you repent, you start over, and you dedicate to valuing uh, spiritual blessing. And if you have rejected God totally, if you are not a believer, all his blessings are available to you in Jesus Christ. When we receive Christ, God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in him. The question is, will you value him and put your faith in him and his redemption in his atoning work on the cross where he died for your sins and believe that he rose again from the dead to prove that he was who he says he was. He is God in the flesh. That's all it requires. Just believe. Put faith and trust in what Jesus has done. If that's something you want to do this morning, you can speak to me afterward. You can speak to our elders. We are always ready uh, to help someone understand how they can put faith in Christ. There's a famous quote by Jim Elliott. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? I pray that you would understand the value of the eternal blessings that God has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much today for just how you bless us. Lord, there are, there are those of us who know we've made mistakes and we want to value the things that you've done. We want to value your word. We want to value your son. We want to value fellowship with your people. We want to value worshiping you above everything else. Father, I pray that uh, we would 
that your spirit would show us those, those areas where we've become numb, where we are uh, vulnerable to temptation and ways that Satan would want to rob us of our blessing. Lord, I pray that as we see those things, that you would revive us, that we would appreciate everything that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.